Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey everyone, welcome back to Create Out Loud with me, John Loudon. On this show, we invite the world's most interesting, dynamic, and groundbreaking creatives to get vulnerable about their creative journey and to share the lessons they've learned along the way so that you too can have a deep and fulfilling creative life. This week, I'm speaking to Laura Davis, best-selling author and beloved writing teacher about the writing of her memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars. You may be familiar with Laura's work from her classic bestseller, The Courage to Heal, or The Courage to Heal Workbook, both co-authored with Ellen Bass, with almost two million copies in print. Like me, Laura has been a creative entrepreneur for decades, having had great early success and as a speaker and writer around healing from sexual abuse, and then realizing, I can't do that anymore, and letting herself pivot and grow into a transformational writing teacher, leading writing retreats all over the world. But this story, the story that she explores in The Burning Light of Two Stars, would not leave her alone. Laura is an absolute treasure trove. We're going to talk about memory. We're going to talk about core stories. We're going to talk about marketing. We're going to talk about being vulnerable in ways maybe we've never explored here before. Without further ado, Laura, it is a pleasure to have you. And it, it was such a pleasure to spend the weekend reading your new book because... I know what it's like to write a memoir and fail. And you and I would correspond <laughs> about it and you kept going and you made it work. It is absolutely unputdownable. And even in the parts that made me honestly squirm because your story paralleled my story with my mom and her experience with Alzheimer's. And I was like, <laughs> times I was like, I really don't want to read this, but I kept reading it. So what a testament to your fortitude as a writer. I just really want to start with my my kudos and my bowing to that because I really appreciate that because I almost quit on this book so many times. I mean, it took me 10 years to complete it. I know, which is it, which is amazing. And I want to talk about that, but first let me back up. And can you just tell us ever so briefly how amazing you are? I mean, we just did that in the bio, so you don't, I mean, in the intro, but tell us briefly about the book. Like give us the elevator pitch on the book. If you right. don't mind. So the burning light of two stars tells the story of my embattled relationship with my mother, our determination to love one another and the surprising and dramatic collision course we ended up on at the end of her life. I mean, when I was in my 20s, my mother and I had a huge rift, and we spent the next 20 years really struggling to find our way back to each other. And if you'd asked me, I would have said that we had reconciled. But then my mother got older, and one day she called me and she announced that she was moving across the country to live in my town for the rest of her life. And suddenly this 3,000 mile buffer we had between us was gone and she started to develop dementia. So my mother moved across the country and her decline pushed 
every button I had. And I mean, how could it not? You know, she <laughs> made those buttons. <laughs> I love that and, line in the book. <laughs> she knows yeah, exactly and, where they are because she made them. <laughs> she made them all, yeah. And um, caring for her brought up all the unresolved issues that still existed between us. And yet I had promised to care for her for the rest of her life. So my book tells the story of what happened afterward. Was I going to be able to open my heart to love her unconditionally? And despite everything that had happened, was I capable of becoming the daughter she needed me to be? Beautiful, beautiful pitch, everybody. I just want to kind of pop out there and say, an elevator pitch for your work is really, really hard and Laura just nailed it. <laughs> I want to go in a lot of different directions with this, especially from a writing and creative point of view, since those are our listeners. One thing that I really want to explore is the great advice that Tobias Wolf gave to Mary Carr early in her career, which is take no care for your dignity when you're writing a memoir. You didn't take any care for your dignity. You really let us see the parts of you that were unhappy and bitter. And again, so many things that I can relate to from my own relationship with my mom. How did you take care of yourself while you did that? How did you take care of yourself while you confronted things that were so hard and you confronted the issue of memory itself? I want to start by saying that the book wasn't always that way. When I had one of the earlier drafts, I sent it to a good friend of mine who's been a creative writing teacher for 30 years. And she read it and she basically said, you know, I don't believe this story. You're making yourself into the hero. Your mother is the villain, you know. And then she said to me, you know, she meant she referenced my first book. She said, Laura, this is not the courage to heal. It's the courage to reveal. And I, I remember, it, I mean, and she, the feedback was devastating because she just slammed the book. And I actually set it down for months, uh, a long time, and thought, I, I'm not capable of doing this. And I was pissed at her as well. It was like, I think for a lot of us, we have these core stories that are ours to tell, and they just insist on being told. And that was my experience. And when I finally came back around to the book, I took her words and I put them on a big piece of paper on my wall. It's not the courage to heal, it's the courage to reveal. And so I, then that's when I started being way more honest and really exposing my underbelly. And it was really hard. It was very hard. I, in the course of writing this book, I had to go back to therapy. A lot of things came up. And in order to write really vivid scenes, I had to be willing to not just kind of, not just tell my habitual story of, well, this happened and this happened and this happened with this like protective layer around me. I had to go back into the deep gut wrenching realities of those scenes in order to write them as vividly as I did. And yeah, I got back into therapy because so much was coming up. I also, I started this book before my mother died, a number of years before she died, but then I completed it after she died. And so I was also grieving, you know, mm -hmm. I was grieving the end of her life and the end of any possibility for things to change further between us. So in part, it was grief. You know, my writing was mm -hmm. really processing grief. But I, and I, the whole time I told myself, I don't have to publish this. Yes. I needed that protection because I would have just completely been shut down if I thought about mostly my family members responding to it. 
Yeah, oh, that's a fantastic answer. I just want to go off of that for one second, because that is something I tell my writing students a lot. Just imagine you're in a castle, there's a moat around you. <laughs> and you know, nothing has to go across the moat until you're ready, but it has to be written. But one of the things I see them fall into then with that advice, if I'm not careful, is then they write it like a journal entry. And you wrote yours, as you said, you had you wrote vivid scenes, this reads very much like, well, it, like it should like a beautifully written memoir it's like we, a novel that's like a novel say. exactly it, but, it reads like a novel it exactly yeah. but so what as a writing teacher yourself how do you help people know that they need to what i call stretch to connect to that reader at the same time that they protect themselves in the castle so to speak well i think you know when people first start writing it's it, it's like a lot like an accordion you know when the when the accordion is compressed and you're just in your own world of telling your own story for yourself it can be really compelling for yourself and super important from the point of view of healing and claiming your life and claiming your power. And I absolutely support 100% that kind of writing, just like I know you do, you know, with the people who come to you. But if you want to have a story that you're going to publish in the world and you hope that it's going to be read by more than the 100 or 200 people you personally know who care about you and will buy your book and read your book, you have to open that accordion and you have to make that story universal. And you have to find the threads that are gonna to relate to other people's lives and other people's experiences. Because, you know, frankly, nobody cares. Nobody cares about who died in your family. Nobody cares about the trauma you experienced. Nobody cares about your healing process. To you, it might be critical to write, but in order to turn it into literature and more than a journal entry, it, you know, there's like, there's a whole process of, of going from writing for yourself to writing for an audience. Laura's completely right that when we want to create for someone else, whether it's as a writer or other creative, it is essential that we think about who's on the other end. But I want to add that something that I teach in my writing programs and at the Oasis is that that voice that says, why should anybody care can be turned around into a really helpful voice. And one of the ways that I do it is to say, dear reader or dear listener or dear buyer of my artwork, whomever you're directing it towards, here is why you should care. And then do a free write or make a list or make a collage about why that person should care. Make the stretch to connect argument. Instead of just believing perhaps that they are not gonna care, which is our default negativity bias, build your case to yourself for why they will care, and then go put it in your work. Make it, make the connection. This is why you should care, dear person that I love and I want you to, to appreciate and be enlivened by and buy my work. And then I'm gonna go back in my work and I'm gonna build that into it so it's there for you. And you know it, that, that awareness usually doesn't come at the beginning. It might not come in the first few years, but there's a certain turn that I see a lot of my students make where they're suddenly aware that this is going to be a shared experience, mm. their experience and the reader, that, it, that the book is a relationship between author and reader, and that you have to engage your reader. You have to create a story that is compelling. You have to create characters um, that are compelling. I mean, I don't know if your students say this to you, but I often have people say, I'll say, you know, this scene is not working. And they'll say, but that's what happened. <laughs> dreaded words <laughs> right that's the way it happened and it's like you know i'm very kind but it's like it doesn't matter if it's what happened if it's not a good story then this is a journal entry this is personal writing which i 
as I said, I absolutely respect, but a lot of people want their work to be published. And mm -hmm. you have to make that leap into realizing you're creating a book that has to have momentum. It has to be entertaining. It has to be emotionally engaging. It has to have characters they can relate to. It has to have a plot where things happen and there's suspense. And uh, that's a quite a big challenge for a memoir. And it is a know, big I, challenge, memoir in particular. Ugh, memoir yeah. in particular. And mm -hmm. I, I've been teaching writing for 25 years. And to write this book, I had to learn those skills. You know, so I yeah. have a lot of chops in writing and teaching writing. This is my seventh book, but I had to learn a whole new set of skills to become a storyteller, yeah. and to learn what it tells to create a compelling story. And I, I often felt, you know, Jen, I often felt like I can't do this. Oh, just, yeah. I'm too old. I can't learn this. It's Why bother? Too hard. <laughs> it's too difficult, you know, but I really, I got a lot of good help and good support. And I'm, I'm really proud of myself. And it was hard. And I, I, it's exciting. It was actually thrilling to have written as much and published as much as I have and to learn a whole new set of skills. Yeah. And to be able, uh, that's one of the themes that comes up a lot here with different guests is, is that embracing that learning edge. And I think as public creatives, it can be a lot harder because, well, first of all, our livelihood is tied to a certain kind of writing. And you and I have both had you much more than me that the incredible success that you eventually said, I can't talk about, you know, sexual healing from sexual abuse anymore. And you, you talk about that briefly and that success briefly in the book in a really compelling way. But also, so our, our, our livelihood is tied to writing about certain things, writing in a certain way, but also that sense of identity, right? That we're good at something and letting that go and softening that and, and saying, can I, can I go into, we might cheekily call the beginner's mind and, and let that, let myself bumble. It's everything to the creative process though. You know, I started writing about creative burnout recently for my newsletter. And I think one of the things that leads to creative burnout is, is exactly that, that we just keep churning over the same material and the same style and the same voice. And you know, it's, if you become successful, it's even harder. Yes. Because oh, it's God, not just, yes. it's not just like, this is what I'm comfortable with, but it's like, it's what people expect of you. And it's what pays the bills. I know this isn't exactly what Laura was saying, but one of the things I see with creatives that I work with is when the story is the same one we revisited or the material or the style is the same one, it's really brilliant to stop and ask, what's fresh here? Or what haven't I explored or said yet or before? And I did a solo episode, we'll release soon, exactly about this and some other moves that you can make. But in the meantime, when we're bored with our work, there can be a lot of reasons, but one of them can be that we're staying in safe territory. We're retrotting the same material, telling the same story, or using the same imagery or colors, and we're scared to break out, or we're scared to dig deeper, which is totally normal, but we can do something about it. When I left teaching and writing about sexual abuse, I was at the peak of my success and mm -hmm. there were tons of opportunities and and I just couldn't do it anymore because it started to feel like a performance. And I also, I didn't want to be identified anymore mm -hmm. with the worst thing that had ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. You know, So it's yeah. interesting in this book, I revisit those themes 
but from a really different point of view, you know, in a much more mature, seasoned point of view. And and that part of my life is the backstory to the story. It I'm is, and you here, handled it really, really well. You know, I tell enough so that people understand how my mother and I became so estranged, but it's really this a love story between the two of us. <laughs> so I want to go back to the beginning when you said I put this book down many times, because one of the things that you know, and I know both as creatives and as working with creatives is a lot of people don't pick it back up again. And that's not always wrong. I mean, when I let my memoir go, it was the right thing to do. It was I finally faced the fact there wasn't a narrative arc there that I was willing to pull out that I that I had any juice left for. What what do you like, how do you navigate or how do you help people navigate that? Should I pick it back up again? You mentioned core stories. I often call them signature themes that we have or signature mm -hmm. stories in our lives. We can't let them go. So what kind of intuition or standards or checklist did you use to go? Yes, I have to pick it back up again. Or was this as simple as it wouldn't leave you alone? It wouldn't leave me alone. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to put it down. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I was terrified the whole time I was writing this and yeah. just full of inadequacy, full of fear about what, you know, a certain little pod of my relatives were going to say when I brought these subjects up again in print for the first time in 30 years. You know, mm -hmm. I, like I made peace with my family after having been kicked out of my family for publishing my first book, The Courage to Heal. And I had repaired those relationships and it was like, okay, now I'm gonna risk losing all of them again because this book is far more graphic about a lot of things. And, it, you know, they were kind of like these little voices on my shoulder, the, the critic, I, I could hear their critical voices. And, and it wasn't really a lot of people, maybe a dozen, you know, my, my immediate family, the people who are characters in the memoir, my my wife, my three children, my brother, they were all on board from the beginning. They really supported the project and they were, you know, they were part of it. But these were people who were not in the book, but they're family members and we shared relatives in common. And, you know, when I was, this is, I think this is kind of interesting because when I was younger, when The Courage to Heal came out, I was only 31. And my attitude then was basically, you know, screw you. I'm telling the truth, you're in denial, you know, and I have a right to tell my story. And I don't regret that. I mean, it, and it all those things are true. But now it's over 30 years later. And I'm just in a different place in my life. And I have a lot of compassion for those people whose lives will be disrupted in some way or will bring will feel grief or anger you know, or humiliation over what I choose to write. I mean, they don't have to feel that way, but if they feel it, it is my responsibility because I wrote it. And it's not for me a question of right or wrong anymore. It's a question of what does it mean to have a writer in the family, someone who is going to make public things and stories that for people who are otherwise very private. So I, I didn't contact my relatives until I actually signed a book contract. And, you know, all along for, for years while I was doing this, I kept having this urge to confess. Like I had to go to my relatives and say, I'm doing this thing that you're going to hate. But I didn't. And I didn't because I, I went walking with my co-author, Ellen Bass, and talked about this dilemma. And she just, she just said, do not contact them until you have a book contract. Because you don't even know if this is going to become a book. Oh, that's good advice. Um, you so know, the day, the, well, yeah. let me just finish this. The yeah. day I signed the contract, I wrote them a letter and 
you know, I didn't ask permission. I informed them about what I was doing and I apologized. And, you know, ahead, I just said, I really apologize for any grief or distress this brings to your life. But ultimately, I just decided I, I had to put this story out into the world. And I'm, I'm sorry, I know it's hard to have a writer in the family. And I felt like that was the best I can do. And, you know, we'll see what happens as, with those people. You did it again in the acknowledgments, too. I thought that was very kind of the acknowledgments in the book. And yeah, I used to be a little bit more hard ass about such a thing myself, both in my own life and helping uh, students, I would be, you know, it's your story, it's your story. But I think what I say now is, if you're compelled to tell it, put the put the castle walls up, (laughs) fill the moat, put some, you know, dragons in the moat, and go there and then decide, decide what will the cost be? Are you willing to pay it? How do you want to negotiate this? Because sometimes the cost is too high for people to tell those stories publicly. You know, and it's interesting because I went to, this happened to me twice in my career, where I went to a family member. It was my mother 20 years ago when I wrote a book on reconciliation that that also talked about our relationship Mm -hmm. a little bit, not, not at all like it does in the memoir. And then with my brother, with this book, when I went to him and he read the manuscript. And I, the, what I said to both of them is, is there anything in here you can't live with? You know, it wasn't like you have edit, you could edit anything. And they both wanted the same thing. They said, can you say more nice things about me? Which was just like, so touching because, you know, the reality is there were a lot of good qualities that both of them had. And I just, it was easy for me to focus much more on the negative because it's more dramatic. Mm -hmm. So it was easy. I just absolutely could say yes and go back and include more and and it only improved the book because we want balanced characters you know mm-hmm. i don't want to read anything that feels like a vendetta you know and i no. i always encourage my students you know don't write a book for revenge you know it's just not interesting to read and that that it, when i i knew the book was finished when people my final um, set of beta readers they said on this page i loved your mother and i hated you and on this page i hated you when i loved your mother and I thought, okay, I'm done. That's great. That's really well <laughs> said. Yeah, revenge doesn't work. It is not a meal best served in a book, period. <laughs> Very well said, yeah. Um, one of the things that I was really intrigued with in the book, because again, this question comes up a lot with students, and it certainly came up a lot for me when I was writing the memoir that that didn't become a memoir. <laughs> uh, sometimes I call it the memoir that shall not be named. And that was how fallible our memory is. And you found old letters from your mother and the crawl space under your office. I mean, you knew they were there, but you finally got them out and sort of started reading them at some point in the, in the writing of the memoir. And they, they didn't agree with everything you remembered. So Laura, one of the things I really loved about the book and, and want to talk more about is how you write about what you can't remember and what you said a moment ago or earlier in the interview are habitual stories. And I know when I was writing that memoir for myself that I'd be like, this is, this is somehow about this isn't completely fresh. Like there's, this is a way I've been telling this story for a long time. And, and I was, I was astonished and fascinated by you found these old letters that your mother had sent you. And it's great that you kept them good for you and the crawl space under your office. And you included some of those and your, your insights about, oh my God, this is not how I remembered it in the book. So what was that like for you? And, 
let's kind of dive into this whole question of memory and maybe you want to read part for me, part of the one of yeah, the I'll, I'll just read a, a tiny Give little some segment. context. Um, yeah, thank you. We both saved those letters. Wow. I'm reading them now, opening them carefully so the brittle pages do not tear. Whiffs of mildew rise as I force myself to remain in the chair. I bargain with myself. I can take a break in 10 minutes. An hour from now, I can take a walk, eat half a bar of chocolate. It takes everything I have not to dissociate. Sometimes I pass out in dreamless slumber. My head is spinning. My heart's cracked open. My back hurts from sitting. But I'm compelled to continue. Something I need to understand that I've struggled to understand for so long is in those letters. They're filled with anger and disappointment, but they also document loyalty and love. Reading them, I cringe. Sometimes I laugh out loud because the letters make it clear that we never gave up on each other. Our relationship was stretched to the breaking point, but never broke completely. That's what I'm discovering. And it's making me ask, what else has been missing in the stories I've tended and curated all these years? There's definitely truth in the stories I've told, but it's only part of the truth. Our history was never that bleak. For decades, I remembered only the nasty accusatory letters mom sent, but forgot the loving motherly advice that arrived in between. A truth teller can only tell as much of the truth as she could face at a given time. No, oh, it's great. It's so true. I feel that through my whole body. And, and I think that's one, one of the reasons why the book is so vivid, in addition to your great writing, is that we really feel that for ourselves. We really turn on ourselves, uh, me with my relationship with my mom, but other relationships too. Where am I telling the same old story? I mean, clearly we do it in marriage. <laughs> we do it in friendships. But one, I, of, the, know, one, yeah. of, the, one prompt I often um, give my writing students is, What's the part of the story I never told anyone? Mm -hmm. here's, the, here's the part I never told anyone before. And it, it really, it's like we prompt our subconscious to get underneath, like what's the story under the story? And what's the story under the story under the story? And if you keep writing the same story, you can keep digging deeper and really get to more of the truth. Yes, well said. And I get a lot of, fear about not remembering clearly. And, and quite frankly, as much as I love Mary Carr as a writer, it really pissed me off in her book about memoir, The Art of Memoir, that she said, if you can't remember, you can't write memoir. Yeah, I, I, dis I disagree. To me, that's totally not true. I mean, I have a terrible memory. I, me too. You know, I think I started because I was, you know, I had trauma in childhood, so I learned to dissociate. So I was absent for a lot of the things that happened. And then I had cancer 15 years ago and I had chemotherapy and that wiped out a bunch more brain cells, you know, and then, you know, my mother, my grandmother had what they called, she was senile. My mother had dementia. I'm getting older. My memory is not good at all. And I, I actually feared that I couldn't write memoir, but you know, I teach a workshop called how to write about what you can't remember. And there are a lot of tricks um, for how to do it. And I found that, you know, free writing and writing practice really brought a lot of memories back. I also learned that you could write a really effective scene using the things you do remember and leaving out the things you don't remember. And you could do a lot of evocative writing that way. So, you know, I, I used a lot of those tricks and I think someone reading this memoir would probably think, wow, Laura's got an amazing memory. 
you know, but actually I constructed those scenes. <laughs> so, and, so, and I, so there's an art to doing that. Yeah. So, choose, so, so let's go into that a little bit more. Cause I know a lot, there's a lot of people listening who are writers, everyone's not, but I think we can apply this to other disciplines probably too. And so what are like, how do you construct without, while, while still staying true to the truth? Because that's a big question I also get is, but I don't remember. So how do I know I'm telling the truth? This is supposed to be nonfiction. You know, there's one of my favorite scenes in the book is this car ride where my mother and I are riding in a car. And I don't, I didn't, I, I just, what I rem remembered was that she spilled a lot of family secrets on that um car ride. And I think it's probably because, you know, those of us who've had, I've raised teenagers and there's, there's something when you have a kid in the car and you're not looking at each other and you're both facing forward that often a lot of things get said. Sure enough. I used to love driving carpool. Uh -huh. Kids were really little because I could just eavesdrop on these conversations. They acted as if I wasn't there and I would learn a lot of things they would never tell me directly. So I think my mother knew that too. And so we went on this long drive and she revealed a lot of things. And I knew I wanted to include that scene, but I had no idea when it happened. I had no idea where it was or where we were going. But I remember what I remembered the most was the weather because it was pouring rain and that that it was in the days she was a chain smoker and the windows were rolled up and the car was just completely filled with smoke and that her smoking and the weather were the two things that were the most vivid to me. So I shaped the scene around those things, you know, and I, I started out basically with like this kind of writing that I, there were it went on for pages in the final book. It got shorter, but it was things like I don't know where we were going. It must have been this time. It, it had to be before I had children because there were no car seats in the back seat. And it had to be after this because we weren't speaking to each other before that. And we were going to some event, a family event. I don't know where it was. I include all that in the story. So I talk about what I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and then I move into the time in the car and I really create a very powerful atmosphere with the cigarettes and the rain. And I mean, I went on Google and I, I, I looked up all the different words for the sound of tires on wet pavement, you know, and I, I, I looked for all those words, you know, clacking, clicking. I, I don't remember what they are now, you know, and, and all the different sounds for windshield wipers. I mean, I, I went to a thesaurus. I spent hours there finding out all the different varied ways I could describe the setting in a very intense way. And that setting creates this intimacy, you know, and then there were the stories and I remembered a lot of the stories, but this this scene was actually a composite scene. Not every single story that is in that scene was told at that time. Mm -hmm. And I, I I feel like you could take those that kind of license. But I mean, everything that was said in that car was said between my mother and I. And I don't remember the exact dialogue. I mean, there were certain things that she said so many times to me that, you know, I want to quit while I'm ahead. That was one of her things. You know, when she talked about dying, I want to quit while I'm ahead. You know, if I ever need to use a walker in a wheelchair, just take me out back and shoot me. You know, so she said these things, those things are just right there. But and the way she told these other stories, you know, she was a serial storyteller. So I heard a lot of these things many times. So I was able to recreate that. But I, I mean, I moved the sequence around. I created a, a dramatic scene that had all true elements, but it's not like it's, it's you, you construct a scene. You do, it's not just memory. You don't just remember it and then record exactly what happened. You take all those elements and you construct a scene that will have really powerful impact on the reader. And, and it, it reveals all the same information and all the same emotions, 
but I probably rewrote that a hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I see, I find that when I have students who have an actual transcript of something that's actually worse because then they're like, but I have to include this and I have to include that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Just let that go and let's write it as a scene. And then if you want to go back and fact check, you can. That, that's really helpful. I, I no, wanna... The other thing is that I have a disclaimer in the front of my book. You do, and, and, you do. And most memoirs do, or maybe it's they in the do. back, but I mean, yeah, most, I, think I, I actually have a file where I collected all the different disclaimers that memoir writers have used because I knew someday I was going to have to write one. And, you know, I basically expressed, these are the liberties I took. Because I, I think the important thing is that I have a contract with the yes. reader. This is what I did. This is how I did it. And then they know how much license I took and how much I didn't. If I was going to claim that this is all verbatim dialogue because I have a perfect memory, well, then if I didn't do it, I'd be in trouble. But mm -hmm. I, I'm very honest with the readers. This is what I did and how I did it. I, lo I love that. And I, I, I love those disclaimers. I collect some of them too for my students. <laughs> I want to switch directions for a second and talk about making a living as a creative. That's something we try to touch on here fairly often. And like me, you've been a creative entrepreneur for many decades. You've, you've um, had the book deal life and the big publisher life and then and then making your own creative teaching business. And, and you went with Girl Friday for this book. Was there a reason why you didn't go with the usual big publishers that you have in the past? Yeah, they didn't accept it. I mean, I, I, I sent this book to my agent. It was before the pandemic and she shopped it around. I had actually had an option, former publisher had an option on my next book, they passed on it. And she started sending it around and there wasn't really any interest. You know, I don't know, it's, it's a, it was a long book. It's a complicated book. It's not a straight linear book. I mean, it's, you know, and you know, I think with big publishers, you're basically as good as your sales from the prior year. That's so you know, true. So even though I've sold 2 million books in my career, I didn't sell them all last year. Yeah. And so I, I started to feel like over the hill, you know, and that I was, they wanted like the young, hot, you know, writers. And I, I just wasn't, there was no indication that people were going to want to publish this book. And so I just, you know, I, after the, at the end of the pandemic, I did a major rewrite where I cut, I think, 30,000 words and just really increased the momentum of the book. And I felt like it really came together at that point. And I just realized that I didn't want to wait, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. want to wait to be chosen and that I felt like compelled to get this book out and that I was just going to do it myself because I believed in it. And so I decided to go hybrid, you know, and I did a bunch of research and due diligence and ended up choosing Girl Friday as my publisher. And I, you know, I can't really assess yet what that choice is because the book isn't even is the book has just come out so you know if you talk to me in two years i could say well hey you know this is how it worked out you know because i make more royalties or i made back my money my investment i i can't say that but in some ways i really like having greater control over a lot of aspects of the process you know i had a lot of say on the cover I had a lot of say on a lot of things and i i it's really you know the book rises or falls on my promotion which is basically true even if you have a big publisher. You know, I mean, it's really on us as creatives when it comes to a book to promote it. You know, I mean, in the old days, I, I was sent on several book tours, you know, where you get put in fancy hotels and you do eight media stops a day, you know, but the attention, even then the attention lasts two weeks 
and then you're on your own. So it, it, it's all really basically the same. And I just decided to go this way. I, I wanted to feel empowered to get this out in the world. And I felt like it was timely right now. There are, you know, this, this is a book about healing an incredibly damaged relationship. And so many people right now are coping mm -hmm. div divides in their families. And I thought it's timely and I want it to come out and I'm getting older and I, I just didn't want to wait. Um, so I, I made this choice and I feel good about it. I, I decided at the beginning of this year, and it's been a really fast production schedule. I recorded the audiobook myself. I hired my own audiobook company and I've learned a lot. I mean, I've had to learn so much. It's been such a steep learning curve for every step of this process. And I'm, I'm really glad I've done it. This yeah, way. I found the same thing with the choice that I made with Why Bother. And I actually found that the two, page two, which is the publisher I chose to work with, they're not really a hybrid. They're more like, they call it bespoke publishing. They they acted exactly like a publisher. What does that mean, bespoke publishing? Well, they, 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 you drive the project. So they, they act exactly like a publisher. The experience to me was exactly like being published, mm -hmm. except I was the decision maker and I was the bill payer. <laughs> well, that's, that's very much like, that's yeah. been my. So everything was, you know, until I, I mean, I, if I was happy, then they were happy and they would give me their opinion and they talked to the book reps and, you know, there was plenty of the sort of that sort of going back and forth, just like you would have with a regular publisher. But if I wasn't happy with the cover, it wasn't going to happen. If I wasn't happy with the, with the edit, it wasn't, it wasn't done. And I love that. That was great. But my, my reasoning was exactly the same words. I choose me this time. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how you take care of yourself while you're marketing. Cause I don't know about you, but it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's like you, you keep telling yourself, it's not me, it's not personal, but you get, you know, when people ignore you or they don't, or they turn you down or it, it's really hard sometimes, some days to keep it going, to keep that flame going, to keep putting the word out. Do you find that? Or do you have a different experience? You know, I would say the, the six month lead up to this launch was incredibly grueling. Mm -hmm. um, and exhausting. And, you know, I had to sacrifice a lot. You know, I, I remember at the beginning of the summer, you know, it looked like things were opening up and people were going on a lot of trips. And I had friends who were, you know, they were going camping and they were going here, or they were flying here, or they were visiting this or doing that. And I was just at my desk working, you know, coming up with designing what the launch for this book was going to look like. And, you know, I think it, 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 it's been really tiring. It's been an obsession. You know, it really, you know, I, I'm, I could be a very obsessive focused person, which in terms of getting work products out is excellent. In terms of my personal relationships, it leaves a lot to be desired. And I've just been, you know, since really since I signed this book contract, so I'd say for nine months, this has been my whole life. At the beginning of the year, I said, I said to my partner, I said, this year is going to be about the book and our puppy, because we got a pandemic puppy. We did too. Uh, in January. <laughs> and, you know, we've been raising this Luna, this puppy and training her. And, you know, so that that is true. That's all I've done for these nine months, you know, is take care of this puppy, train the puppy and work on the book. And marketing is, it, it's hard. I mean, you know, I've had, like you, I've been, a, you know, an entrepreneur for several decades. So marketing is not unfamiliar to me, but this is on a different level. And, you know, I, it's interesting because, you know, the book is just newly out. So I have had a lot of response, mostly from like beta readers or people who have been, I've brought into the process, but I'm just starting to hear from people who 
don't know me, don't know anything about me, you know? And, you know, I certainly have dealt with a lot of negative publicity and pushback from my earlier books, but they were all pre-internet. So, you know, I, I feel like I don't know what I'm heading into in terms of, you know, if someone wants to slam me, I've, I've never before had to deal with, you know, trolls on the internet and, and all of that. So I feel like I, I have something exciting to look forward to, how to develop a thicker skin. Um, how do yeah, you I think mar marketing is hard, it, it's, it it's, but it's so necessary. And, you know, I'm very aware that if this book is gonna become successful, and for me, that really means having it widely read and, and getting it to the point where it begins to have a life of its own separate from what I do for it. That mm -hmm. would be my ideal. Yeah. Um, it takes a huge amount of effort to get it that does. started. How did you, when you were putting together the book launch plan, I mean, there's lots of things that you can do. And clearly, mm -hmm. just like me, you're one person. And even though we have teams and, and help, what did you decide were the three pillars that you would build your launch around out of all the options that are available? Oh, that's a really, really great question. I think one of the most important pillars for me is I really have always made use of beta readers. And so I had 150 people read this book at three different phases along its development. And those, and, the, and then, you know, when I would write to them, I would ask them questions. And one of the questions was, you know, if you were to tell someone else about this book, what would you say? And from mm. that, I probably ended up with 70 kick-ass endorsements of this book. And, and I started with that because I had people who had read it who just adored it and spoke so powerfully about it. And then I leveraged those comments to get to other influencers and to get to other places. So I think having that as a basis really, really helped. That's really fascinating that Laura got all those beta readers. I only did a few to actually give me feedback on why I bother. I think I did four, both people who were writers and people who were exactly my ideal reader to see if it connected with them on what they would change. And then I took their comments into the next draft before I sent it to my editor. So I'm a believer in fewer beta readers, and I think it's really fascinating to have been using those people, maybe less for feedback on the book and more for seeding your marketing. So think about that, and again, whatever your discipline is, I know we're talking about a lot of writing this week, but how can you be seeding relationships with people that can become your biggest supporters way, way earlier than you think? As I've said many times here, what we tend to do as creatives is go into our creative cave, squirrel away, do our work, and come out and go, ta-da, here it is. And then we're like, but where is everybody? <laughs> the idea that we're cultivating a group of people who are caring about us, who are going to be our fans, who are going to buy our work or who are going to help spread the word. That means being in relationship with those people far more often, far more vulnerably, probably than we're comfortable with. But with time and with practice and really giving it what I call conditions of enoughness, like, okay, I do this one thing three times a week. I cultivate this Facebook group or I cultivate this practice group of other designers what does it look like where would you feel both like you're stretching yourself but also that you're designing this in a way 
that works for your personality and works for your goals. What do you want? Like Laura's goals are to sell as many books as possible, really influence people and inspire people. And that may be very different than your goals. There are no rules here. You don't have to do it publicly on social media. You might want to, but you don't have to, right? You don't have to. I hired a publicist, so I do. I did. I am paying a publicist who is doing more traditional media, and so that's a component. And everything to do with you know social media or the internet, I'm doing. And I have a virtual assistant who does a lot of that with me or for me. I have a web team who you know makes the changes on my website, built the book page. I decided to have a launch team for this book, which means you know getting people who basically are going to be enthusiastic fans who will spread the word you know they'll they'll go to the library and say can you buy it mm-hmm. they'll go to their bookstore and order it they'll post a picture of them holding the book online on launch day and talk about how amazing the book is they'll talk to you know organizations that might be interested in this book as a something they would buy in bulk because it deals with some of the themes of the book you know people dealing with grief or dementia or estrangement or healing in different aspects. I, you know, I've tried a lot of things and I think it, it felt completely overwhelming, the number mm-hmm. of choices. Like, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I yeah. actually, one of the best things I've done is I um, have been studying with a woman named Sue Campbell, who runs a program with some other people called Pages and Platforms. Oh yeah, and I've seen that. Yeah, so she has a, a Friday Basically, it's like a club, a marketing club, where people get together every Friday, and each week she teaches a different aspect of marketing and answers people's questions. And I really have gotten my grounding in book marketing from her because, you know, I published my last book 19 years ago, and things were totally different. They were. Um, And then I've hired her as a consultant, and, you know, I've checked in with her at least every month and really gone carefully over, okay, this is what I'm doing. And and she helped me sort through kind of what's the most important, you can't do everything or you're gonna do it poorly. And you kind of have to commit to your plan. I, I found it, yeah, there was just like, it's easy to look at articles and it says like, oh, we've just discovered that Twitter, blah, 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 you know, or people are promoting books on TikTok, you know, and one of the things I learned early on is that you have to know who your ideal reader is. Absolutely. And my ideal reader is not, is on, not TikTok. on TikTok. <laughs> um, and they're, they're, they're probably on Facebook. Yeah, know, they're on Facebook. More likely. And, and it's like, so I did a survey uh, of using the, the people who had loved the book the most. I sent them a survey and I asked them, you know, what do you listen to online? What podcasts are you on? And I, I got a lot of, it, you know, where do you get your news? And those are the places then that I wanted to try to target. And it's easy to want to go after whatever new shiny thing. Oh, is, yeah. You know, the, the marketing idea of the week, but you have to have your own plan and stick to it. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're just scattershot. And always keep in mind, who is the person who is your ideal reader? And, and that, that means who's the person who is going to rave about this book and is going to feel like it was written just for them? You know, and I have a really clear picture in my mind who that person is. It's like crucial. Like you would fit in my demographic for crucial. ideal yeah. reader, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's great. I, I agree with all of that. It's, it's really incredibly easy to get misled and bright, shiny object syndrome when it comes to marketing. Right. How did you handle or did you have to scale back teaching and some of the other things that you do that bring in bread and butter? so that you could have time to market. Cause that's one of the things that I really had to look ahead to not only the writing, 
I could make time for and keep everything else going. But the marketing, I really needed to open up my schedule more. Have you had to do that? Have you had to kind of figure out how you're going to take care of yourself financially? Are you hoping the book sales make up for it? I'm, I'm definitely hoping that the book sales will at least compensate me for the many tens of thousands of dollars I've invested in getting this book out, you know, and there's just no guarantee. I mean, I, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I just think, what the hell am I doing? Like, yes. this is the craziest profession to be in. And, you know, I really believe in this book. I know it's a really, really, like, it's not just another book. It's a special book and it, it has heart and soul and it really touches people in a, in a deeper way. It's more than just, it is entertaining, but it's beyond entertaining. It's inspirational. So I believe in it, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a financial success. You know, there's just, there's so many glittery, shining objects for people's attention. So I, I have had a lot of, you know, moments of doubt and panic over the investment in this project. But on the other hand, I had the money to spend. I mean, it will not, it, it's not going to be this or paying my mortgage. What Laura said, that she can still pay her mortgage no matter what happens with the book sales, is crucial. If you're going to invest a lot in your work, you've got to know that if you lose it all, you're going to be okay. And that's exactly what I did with Why Bother. I worked really hard the year before the book came out to earn extra money to pay for the mo majority of the cost of producing the book, not printing the first print run. I was going to, I took the risk on that and we have recouped that. We did sell those books, but the production, the publicist, I will say that hiring a publicist for self-published work or work that is not strongly supported by a larger institution is pretty much a waste of money in most cases. And it certainly was for me, not because the publicist was bad, but because we still live in a world where gatekeepers like other gatekeepers. Beware the hype of anyone trying to sell you some service that you have to invest a lot of money on. And they use language like, if you really believed in your project, you would take your money out of savings, take your money out of retirement. I have heard of marketers who actually heckle people in live events if they aren't willing to take money out of their 401k, for example. That is so unethical and wrong. If you can afford to lose the money and you have a clear-eyed marketing plan for how to make it back, great. And if you are a writer thinking about self-publishing, check out Writer Beware. They do all kinds of watchdogging, if you will, of things like the self-publishing industry, contests, always, always do your research. There are disreputable arms of major publishers, including Hay House, Balboa Press, and Archway Publishing, Simon & Schuster, just stay away from. So always, 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 if someone approaches you, an agent, a publishing house, etc., do your research. So it's not like I, I'm not a wealthy person by any means, but I I had, and, and I also got some, I got some of the money through the pandemic for businesses because my main business before the pandemic was taking people on retreats all over the world. So I lost, <laughs> I lost all of that income. Yes, me too. Um, and now I'm just teaching online and my income is much smaller. So I, those things help me. And I, you know, I'm not writing a new book yet. You know, I mean, what the energy I would put into writing, I'm putting into marketing. Okay. Like I, I don't, I can't do both at the same time. Oh gosh, no. And I neither. haven't really stopped. I've just kept teaching the whole time. Okay. Um, 
And, but I haven't been able to think ahead to retreats or things that I feel like I should be coming up with new ideas to generate income. And I just don't have the bandwidth. And there's Absolutely. also so much uncertainty. It's it's kind yeah. of, it's really hard to be planning a retreat. Anything live. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely decided for, for 2022, we're not, we're not mm -hmm. going back to live events in 2022. Well, that was really helpful, Laura. So here's my last question I love to ask. Okay. <laughs> what will you learn next? I think I'll learn how to let go of this this story that has been so much of my heart and soul for over 10 years. And it's also, there's so much intimate information in it. And in a way, it doesn't feel intimate to me now because it's the intimacy of what the time I was writing about. It's In other words, this book is not about my current edge in life, so it doesn't feel as vulnerable. But in a way, I, I've, I wrote a whole essay about this that I feel like in some ways I'm losing my own story because from writing about it, the, the version I've written has become more real than my original memories. And, and now I'm putting it out in the world and it's no longer mine, you know? It, it's, it's belonging to all the people who are gonna order it and read it and be touched by it and interact with it and read things into it that I didn't even put in there. You know, so I think it's it's really like release, you know, I've raised three children who have been launched into the world and there's a real letting go mm -hmm. of um, someone or something that's been so intimate and close to you. And then you have to give it a, its wings and let it go. And then I also think I'm going to be learning how to sit with the emptiness of the postpartum of having created something so big over so long of a time and then you know once the excitement of the book launch wanes i think it's going to be i'm in for some challenging emotional ride you know like now what you know and and so i'm going to be learning to sit with that emptiness i love that which i think I, that fallowness is is a part essential. of the creative process it's yeah. so essential and every time i've skipped it i've really really done myself in and I will say that I experienced that in many ways with the, some of the stories and content of Why Bother. And while there was sadness, there was also a really lovely sense of shedding who I and making right. space Thank for you. who <laughs> you might I, like. I that. really needed to hear that at this <laughs> yeah. moment when the book has just come out. You know? <laughs> it took a while, and every but I do feel like. I closed a chapter, several chapters of my life, and that it is, I don't know what's going to come next, but I do feel much more open and present for it. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely terrific. Yeah. I love talking to you too. I just want to say that if if people want to read the first five chapters Ooh, five. Um, yeah. of the book, yeah, it's a lot more than an Amazon sample. I have them posted for free up on my website. It's www.lauradavis.net and you'll find the chapters there. And I, I recommend that you just go see and see if you get hooked. You will. You absolutely <laughs> will. And we'll put all those links in the show notes too. If you all, wherever you're listening, you can look for those links as well and on the our website as well. But yeah. You will get hooked and you won't be able to put it down. I, I read it in one day. <laughs> thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much it's for writing great. the book. It's been really fun to see you. And thank you so much for the opportunity. Wow. What a great episode. That was just chocked full of insights about memoir, about memory, about creating, and about sticking to a project for a long time. And really a project what do you do when a project won't let you go i made so many notes what about you what's your takeaways this is a good one 
good, good episode. Thank you, Laura, so much. And I wanted to invite you to participate in a contest, lottery, I don't know what the right legal word is, but we're gonna be giving away a few copies of my book, Why Bother, and get your bother on journal. And all you have to do to be entered to win is review the podcast. Yeah, wherever you listen, review it. If you listen on Apple, make sure you're logged in to your Apple account. That will uh, be the only way they'll allow you to review. And then just take screenshot of that review and send it to J-E-N-Jen at JenniferLoudon.com. And we will contact you on my birthday, November 30th, if you won. Paper copies available only to people in the United States, but digital for anywhere. Okay, everybody, thank you so much. And guess what next week is? It's another solo episode. I'm going to be talking about why bother. Yeah, I wrote a whole book about it, but I'm going to be talking specifically about why bother to create and how do you overcome those thoughts that it doesn't matter. So make sure you're subscribed, enter our contest with a review, and in the meantime, create out loud.